want to continue our study of principle number seven. And it's a very important principle, that which was literal is spiritual now and will be literal in the coming kingdom. And uh, we want to take a look at a story that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, it is in a certain sense a global story, but it also has many literal things that point to spiritual realities in the future. And so we are going to use this story to illustrate how literal things in the past can apply uh, spiritually uh, towards the end of time before the second coming of Christ. And basically you have the handout, the title of it is The Flood Story as an Illustration of Historical Typology. And we're going to see several principles here, we're going to see how uh, types and anti-types work, uh, we're going to see also um, you know, how the literal becomes symbolic. We're going to take into account several principles that we've already studied, and I'm sure you're going to be able to see these principles uh, as we study along. I'm going to follow the outline just as it is. Well, we've asked you to fill in the blanks. This is a different uh, type of class. We haven't done this before, but uh, you're going to help me fill in the blanks. In this lesson, we want to study the cataclysmic worldwide flood in Noah's day. The reason why this study is so important is because Jesus said that the flood foreshadows the destruction which will come upon the world at the very end of human history. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be at the coming of the Son of Man. But is there more to the story? than meets the eye. Is the parallel just that there, the destruction at the end of time is going to be like the destruction in the days of Noah? Is the parallel only that the wickedness of the world before the flood is going to be is similar to the wickedness that will exist in the world before the second coming of Christ? Or are there more typological things involved than just the wickedness of the race and the destruction that came? That's what we want to take a look at. Now the subtitle that we have here is Satan's Hidden Pre-Flood Agenda. Uh, Satan had a special agenda uh, when it came to blending the righteous and the wicked before the flood, and that's what we want to take a look at now. So let's go to our outline and fill in this blank. Genesis 3.15 explains that there would be warfare between two seeds. And what is the first blank there? The woman's seed and the serpent's seed. So how many seeds are there? There are two seeds. Now both of them were, um, in the case of uh, Adam and Eve, both of them were children of Eve. But the seed you are is not determined by your birth, it's determined by your choice. You realize that. Now the next point is that in the story of Cain and Abel, Abel was the woman's seed, very well, and Cain was the seed of the wicked one. So whose seed was Cain? He was the devil's seed. Now by influencing Cain to kill Abel, Satan thought he had gotten rid of what? Of the seed. See, uh, the devil suspected that perhaps Abel was the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. So he says, I'm going to get rid of this, of this young man, and therefore the prophecy 
of Genesis 3.15 cannot be fulfilled. But of course, you know in Genesis 4, God gave uh, Adam and Eve another seed in place of the seed that Satan had killed by using Cain. Now in the next se uh, section that we have here, it says Genesis 4, 16 to 24, presents the genealogy of Cain. And Genesis 5 delineates the genealogy of Seth. Seth, very well, who took the place of Abel. So the devil says, I killed Abel, problem solved. God says, not so easy, I'll give another seed. And so the devil soon realizes that he's not going to be able to kill all the seeds, because he kills the seed and God brings another one. So the devil says, I need to implement a plan B. There has to be a better plan than trying to kill the seed. And by the way, soon the devil realizes that what God is doing is preparing a holy line from which the Messiah will come. He soon discovers that these seeds, lowercase s, are really preliminary seeds that will lead to the coming of the seed in the future. And that God is preserving a holy line from which the seed will come. Now let's read this note. Before we are able to discover the devil's hidden pre-flood agenda, we must review a few things about the world before the flood. Number one, between creation and the flood, there was a period of 1,656 years. Number two, before the flood, human beings lived to be over 900 years old, at least some of them. Though sin had entered the world, their physical and mental energy must have been enormous. Imagine a scientist working in a laboratory for close to 900 years with much more mental energy. In fact, Ellen White says that Adam was created with 20 times the mental energy that men have today. So they were not living in caves and killing dinosaurs with stone hatchets. There were no drastic temperature changes. The world was close to its pristine beauty. There were no drastic temperature changes. There was no scarcity of food or natural resources. Number four, most likely there was very little disease. And Ellen White confirms this. God had told man to be fruitful and multiply. Imagine how many children 900 year old people could have. There must have been millions, if not billions, of people on the planet the day before the flood. 1,656 years. In a world where there was very little disease, where there was much more mental energy, there was no scarcity of natural resources, and God had told man to be fruitful and multiply. So the world undoubtedly had at least millions of inhabitants by the time that the flood came. Now Genesis 6, 1 through 4, speaks about the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now what happened between the sons of God and the daughters of men? The story in Genesis tells us that the sons of God entered to the daughters of men. Now that expression entered means that they had sexual relations with them. They contracted marriages with them. Now, who are the sons of God? The sons of God are the descendants of Seth. Who are the daughters of men? 
They are the wicked descendants of Cain. And by the way, three women are mentioned in the genealogy of Cain. Very unusual to have women in genealogies. And I'm not going to go into the meaning of their names, but the meaning of their names has to do with their external appearance. In fact, one of them means jewel or ornament, Ada. We say Ada. In other words, all of the names of these women emphasize their external attraction. What is it that attracted the sons of God? You know, you read what the rabbis say. They say that the women ran around painted up in nakedness of flesh and all decked out. That's what the Jewish rabbis say happened. Let me ask you, do you think that there were also daughters of God here before the flood? Were there daughters of God? So why didn't the sons of God look at the daughters of God? Why did they look at the daughters of men? There must have been some external appearance to the daughters of men that the daughters of God didn't have. In other words, the daughters of God were ordinary. They didn't put on all the paraphernalia. They didn't paint themselves up and they didn't run around in nakedness of flesh as the Jewish rabbis express it. Now let's read the note. Some Bible teachers have thought that the sons of God were angels. Have you heard that interpretation? And that the daughters of men were human. And that uh, the result of the crossbreeding between the two was the giants, uh, a, a hybrid that was half human and half demon. That's the view that many, many scholars have today. This view must be questioned for at least three reasons. Number one, the immediate context, remember the importance of the context? The immediate context indicates that the sons of God were the descendants of Seth. And the daughters of men were the descendants of Cain. The previous two chapters give us the context. Chapter 4, the genealogy of Cain. Chapter 5, the genealogy of Seth. And then 6-1, sons of God, daughters of men. The context indicates clearly who they were. Number 2, Genesis is the book about two seeds. Cain and Abel, the sons of God and the daughters of men, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. In every one of these cases, both seeds are what? Both seeds are human. Number three, the Bible elsewhere makes it clear that the sons of God are those who have been converted to Jesus Christ. Is that correct? Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called the sons of God. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. So, and this gives us another important principle that we're going to study when we deal with how to interpret Bible symbols, and that is that symbols do not always mean the same thing in Scripture. Terms, the meaning of terms can change. And for example, I'll ask you, what does a lion represent in Scripture? When you find the word lion, what does it mean? Well, it can mean the literal animal. It can be a symbol of Satan, who goes about as a roaring lion. It can be a symbol of Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It can be a symbol of Babylon, the first beast of Daniel 7. So whenever you find lion, it doesn't necessarily mean it means the same thing. You have to take into account the context. It's true that sons of God can refer to angels. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord in the book of Job. Those are angels. The sons of God sang and shouted for joy at creation, Job 38 and verse 7. Those are angels. But just because the word sons, the expression sons of God is used in one context doesn't mean that it means the same thing in the other context. Because sons of God can also refer to converted people. Are you following me or not? 
very important to take into account the context. Now, by mingling the seed of the woman with his own seed, Satan reduced the number of faithful people on the planet to eight. What was the devil's agenda? The devil's agenda, see, he says, he, he soon discovers, he says, it does no good to kill the seed because God brings another one. What I'm going to do is I'm going to mingle the two seeds. And the devil knows that when you mingle the two seeds, the wicked seed overwhelms the righteous seed. And he says, if I can mingle the two seeds, God's seed will lose its identity, the number of faithful people will dwindle until eventually it will disappear and God will have no one through whom to bring the Messiah into the world. That is his plan B. See, his plan A is to kill the seed. His plan B is to mingle the seeds in order to destroy the Holy Line. Did he try to do that all throughout the Old Testament, destroy the Holy Line? Yes. He used both methods. Yesterday we studied about Esther. He tried to destroy Israel. Why? Because he knew that the seed, at this point he knew the seed was going to come from, from the lineage of Israel. So he says, if I can wipe them out, then there, there's not going to be that seed that is going to crush my head. Did the devil mingle Israel with the surrounding nations? Of course, he wanted to, them to lose their identity. Because he knew that there had to be a holy line from which the Messiah would come. Now, if God had not wiped out the iniquitous pre-flood race, the whole of humanity would have been degenerated to the point where there would be no holy line through which to introduce the Messiah into the world. That is his agenda. And you see it time and again in the Old Testament, the devil using both methods, trying to kill the seed and trying to infiltrate the seed to try and prevent the Messiah from coming. Now let's go to our next section. The sinfulness of the pre-flood race. The almost total depravity of the race before the flood is described in Genesis 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How could God emphasize any more than this? The evil and wicked condition of the world before the flood. Is our world coming to that point? I believe that our world is quickly coming to that same point. Now Genesis 6, 11 and 12 emphasizes that the evil thoughts of men were translated into action. Isn't it true that we many times translate our thoughts into action? Yes. What we think, so we are, is what the wise men said. Now notice what Genesis 6, 11 and 12 tells us. Because the thoughts of man were evil continually, their behavior now reflects it. Their conduct reflects it. And so it says, the earth was what? Corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Incidentally, when you find that word in Scripture, way, 
it means the conduct. It means the behavior. So in other words, because they thought evil continually, now what did they do? They acted evil continually. That's why the battle is really the battle for the mind. Whoever has your mind has you. The battle is not for the conduct. The battle is for the mind. Because as you think, so you are. See, that's why Jesus said that adultery does not begin with a sinful act. It begins with a sinful thought. Isn't that right? Whoever looks upon a woman to covet her has already committed adultery in his heart. And sooner or later, that thought will bear fruit. And so we need to guard the mind. The sin of the pre-flood race began in the mind. It did not begin with behavior. Now in Luke 17, 26 to 30, both the story of the flood and the story of Lot are presented as types of the condition the world will be in at the end of time. This must mean that the sins of Sodom were similar to those which were being committed before the flood. Is that correct? Let's go to Luke. Let's go to Luke 17 and read that so that you can see what we're talking about. Let's go to Luke chapter 17 and verse 26. You'll see that Jesus uses the experience of Noah and the experience of Lot to foreshadow what the world is going to be like and the destruction of the world. It says there in verse 26, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will all be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, is, in other words, in the same way as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So do the stories of the flood and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah overlap? They most certainly do. So let's read this note. The name Sodom has become synonymous with sexual perversion. We use the word sodomy, right? We know that homosexuality was practiced in the cities of the plain, even to the point that the men of Sodom wished to have sexual relations with the angels who visited Lot's house. Lot's daughters had learned the ways of Sodom very well. They made their father drunk so that they could commit incest with him. So was the pre-flood world a world of sexual perversion? Yes. Was the world, were the cities in the days of Lot characterized by sexual perversion? Absolutely. What about the world today? Incidentally, do you know something very interesting? Immediately after the men of Sodom gathered around Lot's house, it says both young and old, the whole city, all of the young and old in the city, the men, gathered around Lot's house. And they said to Lot, send those two men out to us because we want to know them. And Lot had even become defiled with Sodom because he says, no, 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 I got two daughters. You can do whatever you want with my daughters. Have mercy. (laughs) 
So, so clearly these, these individuals wanted to have sex with the angels. And you know what the next thing was? The last sign before the door closed was this episode. Immediately afterwards we're told that the angels pulled Lot in because they wanted to do violence to Lot. They pulled Lot in and the door was shut. Probation was closed. Now let's continue here. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 explains that Sodom had become selfish and materialistic. Of course, that's not true of the world today. <laughs> she and her daughter had pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. Lots of time on their hands. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. This is greed, extreme selfishness and greed that ignored the needs of those who had less. And they wanted to accumulate and they wanted to pile up possessions for themselves. Does this characterize the world today? Absolutely. For a further graphic description of the depravity of the pre-flood race, you can read the sickening account in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 22. There you have a gross description of what these cities were like and what the world before the flood was like. It makes you sick just to read this list of sins in 2 Peter chapter 2, and verses 4 through 22. So because of the wickedness of the world, because most of the world had gone over to the devil's side, due to the union of the sons of God with the daughters of men, God raised up a preacher, one person. Does that person become symbolic of a worldwide movement at the end of time? Yes. See, you have a literal individual. And that literal individual symbolizes a whole people at the end of time who proclaim a similar message. Before the world was destroyed, God sent a powerful worldwide message of warning. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was a preacher of righteousness. He called the world to be righteous. Judged by numerical standards, Noah's evangelistic crusade was a tragic failure. In fact, if he had been a pastor in one of our conferences, he might have been fired. Because he had a 120 year evangelistic crusade and he only had seven people to show for it and they were all members of his own family. Have mercy. <laughs> Just imagine, of the millions of people who lived on the planet, only eight persons responded and they were all members of the same family. If the story of Noah represents what will happen in the end time, do you suppose that the majority will be on God's side? Noah did not preach a smooth message. He denounced the sins of the antediluvians and called them to repent and allow God to change their behavior. His was a message not only that God loves you, but God wants you to give your life to Him and He wants you to live a holy life. His was a message of sanctification, which the world needed to hear. But Noah not only preached, Noah also, what? Built an ark. In other words, his words were backed up by his actions. And if you read Hebrews 11, you're going to notice something very interesting. 
in Hebrews 11, all of the heroes are doing something. By faith this, and by faith that, and by faith the other. By faith Moses left, by faith Abel sacrificed. In other words, they're doing something. You see, man is not saved by faith alone. Man is not saved by works. Man is not saved by faith plus works. Man is saved by a faith that works. Because if your faith is not a working faith, it's not faith. In fact, James says that faith without works is dead, and a dead faith can't save you. Genuine faith always works. So God says to Noah, I'm going I'm to inundate the, the world with water. Wow. I'm going to fill the earth with water. And everybody is going to drown. Did Noah believe God? Amen. Of course he believed God. Had he ever seen rain? No. Never seen rain. He believed God. The Bible says, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed God. What did he do? He went and got the saws and the hammers. And I don't know if they had nails. But what did he start doing? Building the ark on dry land. Did his actions show that he believed what God had told him? Yes, his faith was shown by his works, by his actions. These days it's very interesting, for, uh, very uh, common for people simply to say, Oh, I believe in Jesus. Well, the devil believes in Jesus too. But it's not a saving faith. Saving faith works. So Noah not only preached, but Noah worked to show that he believed what he preached. His words were backed up by his actions. He had a faith that worked. He invested all his time, efforts, strength, talents, and resources into the building of the ark while the rest of the people were saving for a rainy day. Building the ark was not one job among many. It was his primary task. And also preaching was his primary task, right? Notice that it was his building of the ark which condemned the world. Noah did the absurd because he believed God. Faith simply means trusting God enough to do what he says. But you cannot trust God unless you love him. And you cannot love him unless you know him. And you cannot know him unless you spend time with him. There's a sequence there. Noah's preaching was accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is this all symbolic of the end time? Does God have a message calling the world to righteousness at the end of time? He most certainly does. Will the works of God's people show that they believe the message that Jesus really is coming soon? Will it involve how we use our time? Will it involve how we use our resources? Will it involve how we use our talents? How we use our strength? Yeah, because we can say, oh, I believe Jesus is coming, and He's coming soon. And we live in a huge mansion, and we have a Lamborghini. I'm exaggerating for effect. And, you know, we have bunch, bunches of money in the bank. And, you know, we, we dress with $1,000 suits. And, you know, when that happens, do we really believe that Jesus is coming soon? You see, our life shows if we believe that Jesus is coming soon or not. What we do with our resources, with our strength, with our time, and with our talents, the world will see. 
and they will believe if our actions are in harmony with our faith. Interestingly enough, the spirit was striving. My spirit shall not always strive with men. That means that the spirit was striving during the 120 years. Now the note is very interesting. The Hebrew word strive means to plead a cause, to contend, or to judge. In fact, most of the time in the Old Testament where that word strive or contend is used, it is translated judge. So the message of Noah was a message of judgment. The Holy Spirit not only strove with human hearts, but in the process the same Spirit was also judging them based on their response to His pleading. Noah's preaching was a judgment hour message. Is that true of the end time as well? Is the purpose of the message to divide the world into two groups? Absolutely. Bottom of page 2, the pre-flood race was given a period of probation of how long? 120 years. And you say, well, is the probation for the world going to be 120 years? No, we don't apply the year-day principle to historical accounts. That's why you need to read the material uh, that I gave you on miniature symbolization. I deal with this specific time period. Some people are reapplying this time period. But the time periods in the historical sections, see this is what you call typology. This is not direct apocalyptic prophecy. It's a story in the Old Testament that foreshadows the future. But the time period is not to be understood by the year-day principle. Are you understanding me? So, the pre-flood race was given a period of probation of 120 years. As soon as Noah's preaching was over, the what? The door would be shut and probation would close. Have you ever noticed that Noah's message was accompanied by a powerful miracle? Do you know Ellen White says that God's people not only will preach with power the loud cry, but she says that miracles will follow God's people. Now what was the miracle that took place in the days of Noah? Noah did not have to hunt the animals down like Hollywood's version says. You know, the Noah's sons are pulling, they're yanking on the rope, you know, trying to get the animal to come into the ark. No, 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 no. The animals obeyed the voice of God and went into the ark to Noah. That's what it says. Noah didn't go searching for them. They went into Noah. You know, the animals had more sense than the people. Human beings had descended to a subhuman level. I believe is what God is trying to teach here. In fact, we're going to notice an interesting note in a moment. The miracle of the animals obeying God and entering the ark seems to indicate that human beings had fallen below animal level. This is the reason why Jude 10 calls them brute beasts, which is an insult to the beasts. Before the flood, it had never rained. You know, people, you tell people today the earth is going to be destroyed by fire, they say, come on, be real. <laughs> Who would ever believe such a fairy tale? You know, they said the same thing in, in the days of Noah. Before the flood, it had never rained. The earth was not watered from above, but rather a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. In other words, the, the, the earth was watered not by water from above, but by water from below. Let's read the note. The planet was covered with water before creation. 
on the second day God placed part of the water above the earth and part of the water under the earth. That's what is called the windows of heaven and the fountains of the great deep, incidentally. The water above provided a uniform climate. The whole world was indoors, and the water below sprinkled the earth. At the flood, God did not have to create water. He merely brought the waters above back down and the waters below back up. Just imagine Noah trying to convince the pre-flood race that it was going to rain. This appeared illogical, unreasonable, unscientific, and empirically absurd, and yet Noah still preached. So no matter how much how absurd it might appear that we believe that Jesus is coming soon, and no matter how much the secular world uh, you know, uh, thinks that this is ridiculous and it's unscientific, they need to remember the days of Noah. Because in the days of Noah, scientists and theologians and the great men of the earth believe the same thing. Now let's talk about the close of probationary time. When Noah finished building and preaching, the Lord shut him in. Who shut the door? The Lord shut the door. Is there going to be a shut door for the world before Jesus comes, before the destruction comes? Absolutely. See, this is a typology. Now, at the end time, we're not talking about a literal ark, no matter what that 2012 movie says. We're not talking about a literal ark. We're not talking about a literal door. We're not talking about a literal person. We're not talking about literal rain. Are you following me? We're not talking about building a literal boat. The literal becomes symbolic of the spiritual. Are you seeing the principle? Now, when the door of the ark closed, the saved were saved and the lost were lost. After this, there would be no changing of sides. At this time, the Holy Spirit ceased to strive with the hearts of humanity. Was the Holy Spirit withdrawn at that point? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit going to be withdrawn for the earth? See, we don't have to prepare for the second coming. We have to prepare for the close of probation because all cases will be decided at that point. And by the way, probation closes when we die too. If we don't reach the probation, corporate probation for the world, when we should die, our probation is finished. That's why we need to live with Christ every day. We have to have a relationship with Him every day. Now notice, although those outside the ark were lost when the, when the door shut, they did not know it until it started to rain. Noah and his family were in the ark for seven days. Ellen White says it started to rain on the eighth day, so it was seven complete days before it started to rain. Have you ever wondered why God left Noah and his family in the ark for seven days before it started to rain? God could have made it rain the very day that they entered, but He didn't. Is there some theological reason to that? Of course. The faith of Noah and his family was tested to the utmost during this period. Do you suppose that each day that passed, Noah and his family said, Wow, no rain, no rain, no rain. The devil was probably trying to convince them that, that they were wrong. And how do you suppose the wicked behaved for each day that passed? Oh, each day they partied more. They said, Hi, they're crazy. They're in there with all those animals. You know, some people say, how could they take enough food for all of those animals for, uh, f- 
for the year plus that they spend inside the ark. See, people try to find all kinds of excuses to not believe it. And what I believe, this is, this is not inspired, what I believe is that God made all the animals hibernate. <laughs> could God make them hibernate? Of course He could. It might be that they didn't have to take any food in there. That God put them, you know, He put them to hibernate and, and therefore they didn't have to eat. But anyway, that's my own speculation. And I'll tell you, when speculation is mine, I'll tell you. Now, the faith of Noah and his family was tested to the utmost during this period. They must have wondered, will God fulfill His word and send the flood after all? This was a time of triumph for those outside the ark and a time of apparent defeat for those in the ark. The same terminology that Ellen White uses regarding the time of trouble. We can imagine the ridicule and the imprecations of the multitude. But then very early on the eighth day, you see these unidentified flying objects. <laughs> Clouds. And suddenly there is thunder and there is lightning and drops of rain begin to fall. And do you know that Ellen White says that, that they were so hardened, the antediluvian world, that the great men and the scientists said, oh, this will pass. But then the rain started falling in torrents. You know, I was to Iguazu Falls. Uh, you know, the, it, it's uh, where Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil meet. And that is, I mean, it's thunderous. It's spectacular. That was a, about a year and a half ago that I was there. And, and when I was standing there looking at the Iguazu Falls, which, oh, they cover a large distance, and I could hear the thunder of the water, you know, crashing down into the river, I said, man, can you imagine what it would be like for this to be taking place all over the world? Because that's what the flood was like. Cataracts. I mean, I mean, waterfalls gushed out of the heavens. And water gushed out of the earth. And Ellen White says that huge boulders were thrown hundreds of feet into the air by these jets of water that came from the earth. The flood was a worldwide cataclysm. Some have thought that the, that the flood was some local affair in the valley of Mesopotamia. There's Adventist theology teachers that teach this in some of our institutions, that the flood was a local affair. Or some are teaching, and I'm not sure that in the Adventist church we have this, uh, they've gone this far, to teach that the, flory, the flood story is a myth. But there are several biblical, historical, and geological reasons why this was a real worldwide flood in space and in time. Now, you can read all of these reasons. Uh, they cover um, about a page and a half. I'm not going to go through those because you have them in your material. What I will mention is that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are about 11 words that are translated flood into English. 11 different Hebrew words. But when it comes to the flood in Noah's day, there's, there's one unique word that is used only for, Noah's, for the flood in Noah's day. And that is the Hebrew word mabul. It's not used for any other kind of flood. And in the New Testament, you have basically two words for flood. One is the word potamos. And that's the word, for example, that is used, remember the man who built his house upon the sand, and the man who built his house upon the rock, and the, and the flood came? 
Well, that's the word potamos. Incidentally, this is where we get the word hippopotamos, hippopotamus. See, potamus means river or flood, and hupo means under. So it means uh, an animal that, that swims underwater, <laughs> hippopotamus. But anyway, uh, aside from that, uh, the, the word that is used generally in the New Testament for flood is the word potamos. But when it comes to the flood of, of, in the days of Noah, a special word is used. It is the Greek word kataklismos. What word do we get in English from kataklismos? The word cataclysm. In other words, the flood was a cataclysm. It was a catastrophe. It, was, it covered the whole world. And it disfigured the world. In fact, we're going to notice that the world returned to the condition it was in before creation week. Now going to uh, just below the middle of page 4. When the flood came, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And the windows of heaven were opened. In other words, water came from above and water came from below. Noah and his family, listen carefully, were on earth during the destruction, but they were preserved by divine power. Did Noah and his family go through the tribulation? Did the three young men go through the tribulation? Did Daniel go through the tribulation? But the end time generation, God is going to be merciful. They're not going to go through the tribulation, right? Of course God's people are going to go through the tribulation. The worst in the history of the world. But the good news is that we have Psalm 91. No plague will befall, befall God's people. He, we will dwell under the shadow of the Almighty. Praise the Lord. So we better have a covenant with Him. We better have a covenant with Jesus. Because when we are allied with Jesus, He will be our protector. He is the shepherd. He is the head. He is the husband. He is the suzerain or the sovereign over His people. And He has committed Himself to protecting His people in the cat catastrophe to come. Let's read the note. The world during the flood returned to pre-creation chaos. That is, to an empty and disorderly state. Was the earth dark? Yes or no? Was it covered with water? Was there anyone alive? No. Is that the condition of the earth before creation week? Was it dark, according to Genesis 1? Yes. Was it covered with water? Yes. Were there any inhabitants? No. So the world returned at the flood to the condition it was in before creation week. And uh, let me just clarify something. Some people say, oh, so you believe that the earth was here before creation week? Well, there are two views. One view is that this planet existed for who knows how long, and then at some point God decided to do the events of creation week. In other words, life exists only from the time of creation week. Others believe that God created this world, and immediately you have the events of creation week. Now, I have not defined in my mind which of the two uh, is the best one, because there are conservative scholars on, on, that believe one or the other. But let me say that it's really not that important. The thing that is really important is when creation week took place, when life came into this world. Because if this planet existed here for millions of years before creation week, it's irrelevant to us. 
because our idea is that the world is about 6,000 years old since creation week. Now, if God created the world right away, and then He created, uh, did the seven days of creation immediately, well, that's good too. But it doesn't really matter when it comes to the theological position of the church, I don't think, anyway. And so, you know, let me give you an illustration. Let's suppose that uh, at some point, uh, God decides to create life on Jupiter. How long has Jupiter been there? Who knows how long Jupiter has been there? So God decides to create on, on Jupiter uh, throughout a period of seven days. I mean, would that be a theological problem? No, no theological problem at all. Jupiter's there, it has no life, it's lifeless. The key point is when creation begins, creation week. Are you following me or not? Uh, now, let's notice. The world during the flood returned to pre-creation chaos, that is, to an empty and disorderly state. All the wicked perished during this period. What do you suppose has happened to Satan during this period? Now here's where it gets interesting. The world returned to the condition it was in before creation. Now what happens to Satan? Listen to what Ellen White has to say. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 99. Satan himself who was compelled to remain in the midst of the warring elements, feared for his own existence. What a cataclysm this must have been, that the devil feared for his own existence, according to the spirit of prophecy. And by the way, was the devil bound to this earth? Yes. How was he bound? He had no followers, they were all dead. Is the devil going to be bound here during the millennium after the world returns to the condition it was in before creation? Yes. Will he be bound? Yes, because all of his followers will be dead. Do you see the parallel? Now, when Noah and his family came out of the ark, the earth had been cleansed of sinners and was totally changed. The world which then was perished, being flooded with water. Now are we to understand this whole story typologically? Is Noah a type? He's a type of a people. Is the ark a type? Yeah, 1 Peter 3 says it represents the church. Is the door typological? Yes, the door is typological. We're dealing with typology here. In other words, what was literal now becomes what? Many of the details at least become symbolic. Now, did Jesus tell us that this story was typological? Yes, He did. Jesus and the flood story. In Matthew 24, Jesus drew a parallel between the flood story and His coming. He said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now it's interesting to notice that the word until is used how many times? Is used twice. And perhaps we should take a look at that. Let's go in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, because this is the critically important point for this time. And let's read beginning with verse 37. The word until is used twice. It says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And we usually say the coming of the Son of Man is the second coming. It includes the second coming, but it is not only the second coming that is being compared here. 
Let's notice verse 38. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, now listen, until the day that Noah entered the ark. So the word until marks which point of time? When they entered the ark. And they did not know, who did not know? The wicked. Because the, you know, it says they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It's talking about them. They did not know, and now, and now comes the second until. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Now, so you have two untils. When the door closes and the second until when it begins to rain. And in between, those who were outside the ark did not know. What didn't they know? They did not know that they were lost. Is there a parallel between that and what is going to happen at the end of time? Yes, because probation is going to close before Jesus comes. And the world will basically be oblivious to the fact that probation has closed, that the door has closed. And they will continue marrying and giving in marriage, planting, building, eating, drinking, they will continue business as usual, unconscious that the door of probation is closed. And they will only know that they're lost when fire descends from heaven, when Jesus comes on the clouds. That's what Jesus was referring to when he says, at, as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Let me illustrate the point. Let's suppose that it's... Um, well, anybody here from Michigan or Wisconsin, that area of the country? Well, aren't you ever lucky? <laughs> Actually, I'm from Wisconsin. It gets very cold. Anyway, they've had real freezing cold weather in that area, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan. It's been a, a really raw winter. So I want you to imagine that, you know, you get home one afternoon after a long day of work. You've shoveled the snow out on your driveway and you come into the house, and you have supper, and then you're dead tired, you say, oh, I'm going to go to bed. So all of the family goes to bed, and when you're in bed, nice and snug under the covers, all of a sudden you say, I forgot to lock the door. Wow. I really hate to get out from under these covers. It's so nice and cuddly warm. I've lived in this house for 20 years, and the thief has never come. So you stay in bed, and lo and behold, who do you suppose comes that night? The thief. And he comes, and everybody in the house is oblivious that the thief has come. Because everybody is asleep. They're not watching. They're sleeping. And so the thief comes into the house, and he steals your video camera. He steals some money that he finds. He steals a television set. Hallelujah. <laughs> Except for 3ABN, of course. <laughs> and he runs off with all this stuff. The people of the house did not know that the thief came. When do they find out that the thief paid his visit? 
they find out only when they wake up in the morning. But then it is too late. That's why Jesus said that he's going to come as a thief in the night. Not that Jesus is a thief. No, it's not the thief part that is emphasized. It is the surprise point that is being emphasized. Probation will close to the surprise of the world. No need to be surprised. But it will close. It will take the world over like an overwhelming surprise, according to the spirit of prophecy. And most of the people in the world will be oblivious that the door of probation closed. In fact, Ellen White emphasizes that the majority in the Seventh-day Adventist Church will be caught by surprise. Because they're expecting the world to go on for a lot longer. And Ellen White says that they expect to accumulate, uh, to accumulate more stuff. You know, the more stuff that we accumulate, the more the Lord is going to have to burn. It's a time for us to be investing in the cause. Everything, not only money, our time, our talents, our efforts. Noah had a one-track mind. Preach and build. And we should have a one-track mind. Preach and build. Is that not true? Our, this world is not our home. You know, we're only here, we're only here for a while. We only need that which we indispensably need to survive to get us here from point A to point B. And so we should be living in expectancy. We should long for the second coming of Christ. You know, let's go to the last section here. I already did a lot of the parallels uh, in the next section which uh, says end time fulfillment of the Noah story. Let's just go to the, to the bottom of page 6. Living in expectancy. After comparing the flood with His coming, Jesus gave some very practical counsels about how we should live while we wait. What is the first counsel? Watch. Therefore, does that mean watching the signs? Does that mean watching what's happening in the world? Being aware? Yes. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming, and that's not talking about the second coming. It's talking about the close of probation. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. So watch and pray. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So we should be expecting Him. We are to wisely, what's the word there? Invest. We are to wisely invest that which belongs to the Master. And one way you can invest is by contributing to secrets unsealed. <laughs> I had to get that in. And, and, and I'm serious. You know, you kind of snicker at that. But our passion at Secrets Unsealed is to share the special message for this time. That's the passion of our ministry. Amen. Our ministry is not about money. It's not about popularity. It's not about, about having a nice building. This building exists only for the glory of God to prepare material so that people know what the real issues are. Amen. And we are careful with people's money. We are audited by a CPA. 
the money that is donated to our ministry, we, we use strictly for what it is donated for. Our accounts are open. So we need to invest in God's cause. I'm not saying don't pay tithes and offerings. You need to do that at your church. We need to support the work. But you know, we have a lot of extra that we can invest in other causes. Our offerings. The next point, we should do what? We should, well, that word do should not be there. We should occupy until he comes. In other words, keep what? Keep busy. Don't just sit around. Finally, Jesus' parable in Matthew 22, 1 through 14 is apropos. The man without a wedding garment did not sneak into heaven. The examination of the garments represents the judgment which now transpires in heaven. The separation of the righteous and the wicked takes place before Jesus comes. Let's make sure, folks, that we are covered with the garment of Christ's righteousness. Not only his, his robe of imputed righteousness, but his robe of imparted righteousness. Not only being reckoned righteous, but also actually being righteous through the grace and through the power that God gives us in our daily lives. What is going to convince the world that Jesus is real is not that we say, oh, I've been justified by faith and we live like the devil. No, it's our life that will show whether we are really committed to Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.